Hello and thank you for joining us for week three of our Daniel series, Living a Life of Integrity. The big idea of this series is that it explores the key themes in Daniel. Some of these are the sovereignty of God, the importance of faithfulness in the world, and God's redemptive plan for his people. By focusing primarily on the life of Daniel, we gain a powerful picture of a faithful person and his challenges living in a hostile culture. And so if you will, go ahead and turn this week to Daniel chapter 3, and I'm going to be reading out of the voice paraphrase. Again, it's Daniel chapter 3. There's going to be some scripture in this as well as some commentary. So starting at Daniel 3, verse 1. One day King Nebuchadnezzar ordered his craftsmen to make a statue plated with gold that was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Let's just stop there for a moment. 90 feet high is about 10 stories tall, which is huge. This giant idol is clearly meant to intimidate anyone that looks at it. When these craftsmen were done making the statue, it was put up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. This is where we pick up at verse 2. King Nebuchadnezzar planned an elaborate ceremony to dedicate this statue. He sent out invitations to all the officials. At the appointed time, his officers, prefects, governors, and trusted advisors, treasury officials, judges, magistrates, and all the rest of the provincial leaders arrived and gathered near the statue for the dedication ceremony. It's interesting to note here that the Babylonian Empire has a very complex governmental structure. At the top, of course, is the king, a man descended from the original founder, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian who wrestled the region from Assyrian control about 612 BC. A resident of the Chaldean region of the Babylonian Empire, he brings his friends in with him so they can be on the top of this pyramid, making the Chaldeans the most powerful people in the empire. It's interesting, though, as the empire grows, the king needs friends under him to rule the far-out provinces, so he appoints satraps, guardians of large portions of the empire, and representatives of the king in his absence. Within each large portion, prefects rule the conquered city and report to the satraps. In every part of the empire, the power of the king is felt through servants, who administer justice, protect the land from invasion, and, of course, collect heavy taxes. This is very similar to, I mean, our modern government nowadays. We have, of course, our president, we have federal government, we have state government, uh, and we even have local government. So it's very similar. Let's move now on to verse 4, and this is a herald talking here. People of all nations and languages, by order of the king, you are commanded to bow down and worship the golden statue erected by King Nebuchadnezzar. Every time you hear the sound of the horn, lute, flute, lyre, harp, pipe, and other musical instruments, anyone who does not obey the king's command and refuses to bow and worship will be taken immediately and thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Verse 7. So on cue, the moment all the people in the crowd heard the sound of the musical instruments, the horn, the flute, the lyre, the lute, harp, pipe, and all the rest, all of the people, regardless of heritage, nationality, or language, bowed down and worshipped the golden statue erected by King Nebuchadnezzar. Meanwhile, certain Chaldean leaders stepped forward to make accusations against a few Jews. 
So the Chaldeans said this in verse 9. Long live the king. You, good king, have made a decree that every person who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, lute, harp, pipe, and all other musical instruments is supposed to bow down and worship the golden statue you erected. You have also decreed that anyone who does not obey the king's command and refuses to bow and worship will be taken immediately and thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. It has come to our attention that certain Jews whom you appointed to govern in the province of Babylon are ignoring your order, O king. They refuse to serve your gods, our gods, and they do not fall and worship the golden statue you erected. Their names are as follows, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 13. When Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in for questioning. So his officials went out, found them, and brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar says to them in verse 14, It is reported to me that you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to serve my gods, and do not bow and worship the golden statue that I have set up. Is this true? It's interesting here to note that before they have a chance to answer, Nebuchadnezzar decides to see for himself what they will do. So this is what happens in verse 15. If you are ready to comply with my order and fall down and worship the statue I have made, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, lute, harp, pipe, and all other musical instruments, then things will go well with you for here. But if you refuse to worship, you will be taken immediately and thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. What God could possibly rescue you from my hands then? And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond with one of the most incredible things we see in the book of Daniel. In verse 16, they say, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to defend our actions in this matter. We are ready for your test. If you throw us into the blazing furnace, then the God we serve is able to rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and release us from your power. But even if he does not, O king, you can be sure that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue you erected. It's interesting to note here that Daniel's friends are men of conviction. They're ready for anything that the king throws at them. And they also know that God can release them from the king's angry grip. They just don't know if he will. That line, but even if he does not, resonates with faith. Everyone who wants to follow God really asks sometimes for miracles, maybe even on demand. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know the one true God doesn't always rescue people from harm. He doesn't always rescue martyrs. Still they believe, uh, still they do not back down. They will not compromise. They will follow him and serve uh, their God, not Nebuchadnezzar's. So we see this in verse 19. At this, Nebuchadnezzar flew into such a rage, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw that onlookers saw Nebuchadnezzar's face twisted and distorted. With fury burning bright in his eyes, he ordered the furnace be heated up seven times hotter than usual. He commanded some of his strongest soldiers to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so that they could uh, be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. They were taken and tied up so quickly uh, that they were still wearing the clothes that they had on when they arrived, their pants, their cloaks, their hats, and all. Then they were picked up and thrown into the furnace of fire. In verse 22, it tells us that the furnace was so hot and the king's command carried out so quickly that there was no precautions taken. 
and that the soldiers that took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up to the furnace were themselves killed by the heat of the raging fire. And the three Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, tied and bound, fell into the furnace. But we see this incredible thing happen in verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar could hardly believe his eyes. Shocked, the king jumped up and asked his advisors, Didn't we tie up and throw three men into the heart of the fire? The advisors respond, Yes, O king. Nebuchadnezzar responds, Then why do I see four men completely unbound walking around in the middle of the fire? They don't appear to be hurt at all, and the fourth, he appears to be like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar moved as close to the furnace as he dared without being scorched. He shouted out over the roar of the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out right now, come here. So the three men made their way out of the fiery furnace. The officers, prefects, governors, and king's advisors moved closer to see what had happened. They too could hardly believe their eyes. The fire had done nothing to harm these men. Not even a hair was singed on their head. Their clothes were not scorched, and they didn't even have the faintest smell of smoke. Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 28 with something pretty incredible. He says, Praise is certainly due to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego today. He sent his heavenly representative and rescued his servants, who put their trust in him. They had the audacity to disobey the king's order and surrender their bodies to the fire, rather than to serve and worship any god other than their own god. Therefore, I decree that any people, regardless of their heritage, nationality, or language, who speak against the god worshipped by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be torn apart, limb from limb, and their houses reduced to nothing but rubble. For no god I have ever heard of is able to rescue them as we have seen today. In our last verse, verse 30, afterwards the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. So we see in our scripture that there's really three, three themes that are actually said here. There's more, but the three that we're going to look at is the topic of sovereignty, the topic of suffering, and also an idea of prosperity. Because the big idea of this message, I think, is that God is sovereign over everything, over all the details of our lives, over our daily interactions, over uh, what he calls us to. And our application can be that when we communicate God's presence in other people's lives, we can be present with them. So our first talking point tonight is going to be uh, right kind of in the middle of our scripture here. While Daniel and his friends had proven their worth to the king in the past, as we see in Daniel chapter 1 and also Daniel chapter 2, their work and lives obviously began to come into conflict with others in the kingdom. Although their service for the king was doubtless exemplary, their refusal to adopt the culture and religious patterns of their Babylonian neighbors must have been a source of increasing animosity and bitterness behavior their enemies could use as an excuse to destroy them later. This kind of approach pops up again and again in Daniel, and it pops up again in Daniel chapter 6, and also is a central plot point to the book of Esther. While it is important for Christians to do good and faithful work in whatever culture they find themselves in, faithful refusals uh, to all cultural norms will often invite backlash. This is really important to remember, especially in our culture, that sometimes... Uh, our Christian values are going to come into contact with culture around us. Daniel's friends also must have been very frustrated and confused by the persecution that they were all of a sudden experiencing. 
because years earlier their faith had led them to refuse the food of the king's table that we looked at in week one of our series. But now their faithfulness to only worship God was going to cause them serious harm and even death. Just like these men, we might believe that God was going to cause, uh, uh, maybe that he was going to save them this time. But we might too believe that God will always protect or provide for us in ways that we maybe even expect. We might not say we believe in the prosperity gospel or that God's going to bail us out every time. But we actually do buy into that more than we think. Author Kate Baller discovered this whenever she was diagnosed with terminal cancer at the age of 35. She's a historian who has written a book chronicling the rise and popularity of the prosperity gospel in American culture. She spent years researching this phenomenon and disagreed with it deeply. But her failing health made her realize that no matter how many times I rolled my eyes at the creed's outrageous certainties of the prosperity gospel, I crave them just the same. The prosperity gospel looks at the world as it is and promises a solution. It guarantees that faith will always make a way. We also see in the story that we have a a human tendency towards the prosperity gospel, definitely as it relates in what makes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to persecution so incredible. When faced with the fiery furnace, they believe that God could rescue them. But then this key line pops up. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. They believe not only in God's omnipotence, but also in God's wise sovereignty. And that is a great lesson to learn in the midst of suffering. It's a great lesson for us to also stash away today. That even if things don't go well, we need to remember that God is still sovereign. We also learn something incredibly significant about God in Daniel chapter 3, verses 24 through 26. God spared these three men, keeping them safe from the fire and preventing even a hair on their head from being singed or their robes from even being scorched. But God did even more than that. He was actually with them. Sure, scholars have argued over this verse about who the fourth person is, this person that looked like a son of the gods, Was it an angel? Was it pre-incarnate Christ? Regardless of exactly who was there, God sent a bodily presence to comfort the three men in the fire. And this is also hugely important, that God is also with us in our problems or our fires of life. We have the ability to share the presence of God with others and provide the comfort God provided the men in the furnace. There's a really great story about a pastor who visits a hospital uh, and he's visiting this young seminary student. The man he was visiting was horribly injured from a drunken fall the night before, which is, again, kind of interesting that he's a young seminary student. He confided in the pastor and find out that he had lost his family and his ministry due to alcoholism. In that moment, there was nothing to do but weep with the man. They didn't even know how long they cried, but the weeping was a liturgy without words. The tears were a silent sacrament containing confession and absolution, condemnation and compassion, burial and resurrection. The interesting thing is, 
in this, we often realize that when others cling to us, they're actually clinging to God as well in us. And we also see that in the story, that there's three men who stand up to a king, and God is with them all the way. And he's with us all the way, too, in the worst areas of life, on our absolute best days and our absolute worst. The great thing about this chapter is it teaches us a lot about the character of God. It teaches us that he's, he's sovereign, he's faithful, he's compassionate. Whereas the previous chapters taught us, and the book's original Jewish audience, that God is able to reveal mysteries, and he's sovereign over all the nations and the rulers. This chapter shows God stepping into history and becoming intimately involved in the lives of all people. We can find comfort in knowing that while God is also sovereign over human history and large events, he's also sovereign over the smallest details of our life. And those are just a few thoughts from Daniel chapter 3. Uh, so I hope you've enjoyed just kind of this, this reading and talk over uh, the book of Daniel chapter 3. And join us next week for chapter 4. Or come down and check us out at the Salvation Army at 115 Crescent Street in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Or just wait for it to come out on Facebook uh, next week. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, feel free to leave us some comments. And may you have a blessed night.